Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Steve Perryman in brackets helped by Tom and Howard podcast. We're all feeling a little happier with the result of the Europa Cup game with a comfortable aggregate score and now eagerly awaiting the draw for the next round of games. In past years, that would involve the anticipated travel plans as nothing better to travel afar to support your beloved team with a plane load of like-minded supporters to then join the masses in pubs, bars, restaurants, and eventually the stadium to let the locals know of the importance with such a high level of support and noise of the mighty Tottenham Hotspurs, famously throughout the world and Europe. Of course, that's not on anyone's agenda this particular season, but we'll never know what the future holds with the faint possibility of travelling to be allowed as the competition reaches its latter stages and with our expected continued involvement. Some of my fondest memories are from and made of the European travel with three UEFA Cup finals and one semi-final appearance in the early 70s and 80s with brilliant teammates and staff who continually rose to the challenge of new, sometimes unknown European opponents. Our success was built on attacking prowess with quality such as Gilzine, Chivers, Peters in the 70s, Archibald, Crooks, Falco and Hoddle in the 80s, with an extra dimension of set-piece knowledge and techniques in both penalty areas, which were decisive in many tight games. Defensive solidness and midfield creativity that could add to both our goal threat and our defensive strength when called upon or needed. Well, let's see if we can recreate some of those glorious European nights in our terrific new stadium later on with the added bonus of a full house of hungry for success supporters to push us over the line and to create a new history at White Hart Lane, bearing in mind that the year does end in a one, as Chaz and Dave so loyally remind us all. As mentioned before, we have Howard and Tom, as usual, in attendance, ready with their memories and opinions about past and present glories or otherwise, as to this podcast and Burnley in particular. Howard has some details of such, and I know that you, Howard, and Viv were regular travellers during those European campaigns. Howard, what was your favourite travel destination in support of the team and why? It's a tough one. There were some great, great trips. Um, Munich would always stand out for us, um, partly because we played by Munich two years running. Yes. And we, it was the first, the first year that we played them that, that, um, that was the fog, the night of terrible fog. Yeah, we got lost in fog, eh? 
And uh, as far as I was concerned, we only lost that game 1-0, not 4-1, because I only saw one goal down my end, the other end is too far to see. <laughs> That's a true supporter. What was, what was good about it as well was that um, the, a lot of it depended on uh, whether we were going to go straight home after the game or whether we were flying station the next day, which depended on local laws, I, I, I guess. Munich was one of those where clearly there wasn't time to get back to London. So we stayed overnight, which is when we could have fun with the players because you you want them one chance to relax. Yeah, um, for sure. So the one year we had the fog in the ice, another year was um, we were in the bar of the hotel where you we were staying. And it was really nice just wandering around with, not really, really we, we knew Ray, but only vaguely knew you at the time and nobody, nobody else. And actually, Steve Archibald and Chris Hewton came over to us and said, we just want to say hello because we see you on all the trips and everything and you're never getting busy with everybody and thank you very much. Which was very nice. That's that's great from them, isn't it? And that's, Chris, that's Chris, 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 of course, I know is a very nice guy, but Steve Archibald was a surprise that how good he was. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Howard, did um, did Viv judge the visiting city by the quality of the game, result, or the shopping expedition? <laughs> She's very well behaved, actually. <laughs> not too much shopping then? No, definitely not. Go, Howard. Give us your Burnley stuff. So, strangely enough, we played Burnley four times within six years in the early 60s in the FA Cup. The first such match was the semi-final played on the 18th of March 1961 at Villa Park. Spurs were on our way to the double while Burnley were going to finish fourth in the league. In the event, Spurs won 3-0 with the following team, basically the one that would do the double. Brown, Baker, Henry, Blanche Flower, Norman Mackay, Jones, White, Smith, Dyson, Allen. How those names roll off my tongue. This is the team of all teams. We then met Burnley the following year, but this time it was the final. The Spurs team was almost the same one from the previous year, except for Terry Medwin in place of Terry Dyson and Jimmy Greaves in place of Les Allen. Greaves scored after three minutes. Robson of Burnley equalised on 50 minutes, only for Smith to restore our lead on 51 minutes. Blanchflower scored a late penalty on 80 minutes and we had retained the cup. The third round draw the following season, 62-63, had us playing Burnley at home. The repeat of the last final. This was the winter of the worst weather Britain had known in centuries and almost all matches were postponed. They somehow got the pitch ready for play. No one saw heating in those days. The pitch was covered in snow with just the lines cleared. It is worth mentioning the Spurs pitch of those days. It was absolutely awful. How we played so well under those conditions, I will never know. We clearly were unhappy and lost 3-0. The last time prior to that that we lost an FA Cup tie had been in February 1960. 14 games ago. Great run. Our next ma match versus Burnley in the FA Cup fourth round was 66, Gillies match. Irvine scored for Burn Burnley first after just three minutes. He added a second after six minutes, converting across from Ralph Coates, later of Tottenham. Unmistakable even then by his unique hairstyle. Short back and swoop, uh, uh, Ralph. <laughs> Spurs were shell-shocked. Alan Gilzine, Gilly, pulled one back before half-time. Midway through the second half, Gilly scored again, two all. Irvine then added a third, only for Gilly and Cliff Jones to create a chance, which was converted by Frank Sewell on 80 minutes. 
As the game goes into injury time, Gilly crashes the ball in, so Spurs win 4-3. There are clips from many of these matches on YouTube, and what else comes across are the terrible conditions we played in, and especially the pitch. It was just a sea of mud made even worse when icy. It's often said that we were great when the pitch was unplayable, and we've been worse the better the pitch has been. <laughs> nice words, Howard. Thank you very much. So I'm going to mention Burnley a little bit later on, but um, I want to start off by talking about a wonderful picture I saw on Facebook yesterday of Bill Nicholson and a lot of legends, including Pat Jennings and I think um, the commentator, Wollstenholme, was in the picture, Dave Mackay, other, other double winners, and it was to commemorate uh, the opening of the Bill Nicholson Way. So I think Bill and the others had, had a glass of something in their hands. And where you're asked to put a comment, I like to, to pass some comment. And I wrote, I was taught the Bill Nicholson Way, thankfully, out of respect of the, the great man. So what was that way? Disciplined of course, but also on the other occasion, he he could have a laugh. I remember him saying to Gilly one day before we went onto the pitch, Gilly, we're the ones in white today. <laughs> I'd have died a death if he'd have said that to me. Um, John Fenley sent me a, a, a text about Bill Nicholson when I asked him about the details, because that that uh, Bill Nicholson way was in 1999. When Bill Nick was created a freeman of the borough of Haringey, it meant that he could graze his sheep on the local village greens. This is John talking. When I called to interview him on the subject, he suggested I should sod off. Good old days. F off, Fenners, the eternal cry. So, yeah, what, what did he stand for? Um, first look forward when in possession, when not in possession, get into position. Play quick, easy and accurate was my first ever instruction when I walked through the doors. He never told me or anyone in the team to waste time. He never told anyone to kick an opponent out of the game. Appeal for everything, but argue nothing. But we were in no doubt that he called the shots in all aspects of running the club from top to bottom. I believe the, the same applied to Keith Birkinshaw. One worrying aspect is many people say to me these days, and of course it's a different era from the, from the ones that my career covered, they say, unless it's my team plan, I'm not so interesting, interested in watching other games. And I wonder why that is. VAR, possibly, and a non-understanding of rule changes, handball, for instance, offsides by a toenail, and goal decisions being somewhat delayed. I also believe that 
we're bombarded with football opinions too, social media, phone-ins, etc., and and such a blanket coverage of games, which is the total opposite to when I was growing up, when the only live games were the odd international match in midweek or the cup final. So about a maximum of three to four games per season. The other things that worry me are the expert opinions coming at us from every angle. Take the other weekend, the new Chelsea manager of some repute subbed the player on and then a while later decided to sub the same player off. When asked by the TV commentator afterwards why he did this, he explained honestly that he didn't like the player's body language plus some other things that he he explained. So when they go back to the experts in the studio of Match of the Day, BBC Match of the Day, all three said yes to how wrong this was to dig the player out on camera. And therefore, what would the other players be thinking, they said? Not the way to manage. Not Imagine, not the way to manage. Three opinions that all said the same thing. Wasn't there room, my, my point is, wasn't there room or time, not that I understand TV matters, for one, maybe to play devil's advocate and and maybe trust that this manager knows what he's doing. I'm worried that players cannot take man talk anymore, which I think is the it's been the backbone of the of the game, uh, especially during my time, because that's all I can speak about. And what about if the manager had tried a couple of times behind closed doors, which didn't work, and then this was the next stage of his communication with that particular player? I personally think that the only power the manager has these days is selection. Unlike Bill and Keith, yes, different era, of course. Find a player 100 grand, no problem. The player's agent probably phones the chairman for an explanation. I want to and will listen to information all day long about goal scoring from legends like Lineker and Shearer and co. But not sure how it's possible to give advice to the very top managers from the distance or space that they thrive in, these pundits, that they thrive in these days. Chaps, for your your, uh, input, am I being too spursy with this opinion or or what do you think as supporters, Howard and Tom, of that aspect of a manager calling out a player in front of everyone else? I certainly think that... um... To do something publicly against a player, it's got to—it's got to be a dangerous thing to do. Um, do you remember some years back? Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the guy. He, at halftime, he was very disappointed with his team, and he kept them out. Phil Brown. Phil, Phil Brown of Hull. 
turned into a Jimmy Bullard celebration. Right. But Hull then went on a spiral downwards ever since that moment. And I th- I think the managers just, tr- tr- I think Phil Brown was a bit of a self-publicist, so he knew he'd get coverage of that. Yeah. But I think, I think um, even given that, it's a dangerous thing to do. And it seemed, didn't do him any good or the team any good. Yeah, there's a, there's an obvious danger in it. And uh, Tom, any any opinion? Yeah, I mean, it's like you say, you don't know what's gone on behind the scenes in terms of the conversations the manager might have already had with a player before he then says something. Previously, in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and whether it's part of some long-term strategy with that player, you know. Um, but, you know, as, as you said before, Steve, there's so many aspects of a manager's role which we just don't see visibly. From, yeah. from, from from the side and uh, you know from from our perspectives and we don't know what kind of conversations have gone on before um that may have prompted him to get to the point where he wants to to say something um with a view to psychologically kicking him up the backside who knows yeah i i i think let, let, let's let's pull a number out of the bag i think there's maybe a hundred different aspects to being a manager going from training the team or selection of the team at the far end, this end to that end, about a hundred different things in between the timing you set for training, how long they train for and all this stuff. And I just think that the, the pundits concentrate on five or six of these different aspects without knowing the, the, the full extent of what it involves being a manager. And if you've never been a manager, how could you know those things? Yes, you've played under a manager, but most days you're training under him and then you go home. You don't, you don't know what the manager does in the afternoons with his time and with the other players and stuff. So, so yeah, so, um, and, and just to finish that off with the Chelsea manager, he ended up by saying, so we'll talk about it tomorrow and then it'll be over and done with. And guess what? he then picked that player to go and get a victory at Atletico Madrid. So (laughs) I can't tell you that it's worked because, you know, if he hadn't pulled him out, they might have won by more goals, for instance. Who knows? But, But it looks like he knows his players, even in the short time of of working with them. And he was he was asked specifically as well why he made the decision he did, and he just answered. What do you want? And, uh, what do you want to lie? Yeah, and so it's, it's refreshing. Question. It's refreshing yeah. in a way, and then and then, like you say, he got a, he got a response from the player going forward. I think there's room for man talk. If there's no man talk, I worry about where this game's going. So now I'm on a roll with uh, commentators and studio experts. I believe that they are all convinced with the term game management. So ignore it when it doesn't work. Like in the Man United Everton game, I don't know if anyone can recall this a couple of weekends ago. So Man United are winning 3-2, home game. I think, and uh, four or five minutes goes up on the board. And during that time, they decide to make a substitution. That looked to me like game management. 
Of course, extra time gets put on for that substitution. The substitute comes on, gives a foul away. That free kick gets knocked into the box and Everton score the equaliser. So it doesn't always work. And if three in the studio or two commentating on the game, why, why can't one of them put the other argument that it's non-football? And too much of this running the ball into the corner flag or goalkeeper of the winning team taking forever to take a goal kick, touching his shin pads hair, kicking the mud, imagine in these days, mud off his boots, just to waste time. The experts even suggest that this is so professional and has to be done for the sake of a result. Why is that when it's non-football? It's really non-football. People pay good money in normal times to watch the ball in play and not out of play. I'm sounding like a politician now, but it's always a balance between result football and the entertainment level of that match and that game. As supporters, how do you see that, chaps? Well, time wasting has been, for me, one of my real bugbears. And seeing the goalkeepers doing exactly what you say, kicking the posts or checking the mud on their boots or checking their sh sh socks are properly done up. The same thing applies to uh, a lot of the fullbacks taking throw-ins. They will delay and wait. But it, delay, all, delay, delay. And we all know what they're doing and the referee knows what they're doing. And in my opinion, in the last few years where you've got the... Super League of the top of the Premiership and the, the others. The others come to White Hart, White Hart Lane or any other grounds of the big six, as they say, and they will ex be, be coming on a very defensive basis because all the big clubs have got the best players. Mm. And therefore, these smaller clubs often come to the grounds and go to a wasting time position from the very beginning. And I think that if a referee, the first time he sees it in the match, he should go over to the goalkeeper or whoever else is the culprit and say, right, I've seen you wasting time. I know what you do. Find, you got away with this one. The next time you do it, I'll book you. The next time you do it after that, I'll send you off. I think very yeah. quickly it would put an end to that nonsense. I agree entirely what you said there, Howard. I, but I think it means that the referee does not know the power of the yellow card. Once you give that goalkeeper the yellow card, and it doesn't have to be four minutes from the end, if you look at the statistics, the goalie normally gets a yellow card for doing such things in about the 86th minute. Yeah. You know why? So he hasn't got time to give a second yellow card. I think it's actually a bit cowardly. Yeah. Tom, anything on that? Time wasting. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's obviously something we've got used to over the last few years at, at White Hart Lane since we've um, been hitting a bit higher than than we had in uh, in years gone by. Um, the likes of Ben Foster, in particular for West Brom, very well known for wasting time. He's a bit of a pantomime villain whenever he comes to comes to the lane now. Um, and I remember actually Joe Hart, now of us, of course, um, when we played Burnley at Wembley, 
couple of seasons ago, we uh, we were battering battering them throughout the game, and he was just wasting so much time and under clear instructions throughout the match. Um, and when we were sat right behind his goal, and when Ericsson popped in the last minute winner, it was one of the sweetest moments of uh, of the season. I think just to kind of okay. see a bit of vindication against that kind of um, that kind of tactics. Like you say, it's not football. It's um, it's it's something that doesn't involve the ball on the pitch, and it's just very frustrating. This kind of with, with all the technology that's involved these days, surely the referee should be able to know, and certainly the people in the, back in the office should know, how much time is the ball in play? Yeah. I saw a statistic once that it's only in play for about an hour. Yeah, that's what I've of, of the 90. Well, again, you're selling the, the pay in public, be it through your Sky channel or... Yep your attendance fee, your season ticket money, you're, you're actually cheating the, the supporters of their entertainment level. I, I don't care if you're winning or losing. What, what happened to the mentality of we're 3-1 up by playing positively, so why don't we keep in the same vein and win 4-1? Why, why can't that be a mentality? So I asked the question again, Am I being too Spursy? And yet, you know what? I've not even started on the professional foul yet. <laughs> but maybe, maybe for another game. Were Bill, Keith, Bielsa, whose team is worth watching, the Everton manager, Pep, for instance, as well. Are they too Spursy? Uh, Am I being unrealistic to ask for what I'm asking for? Two teams to play the game as hard as they can, as committed as they, they can be, to um yeah, to 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 go and get a result, but have an element of entertainment in your football. So I'll do the professional foul one, which I detest. Absolutely detest. We'll do that another day. So to finish, um, thank you, chaps, again for your opinions. I hope, uh, hope you out there enjoyed the listen. Uh, next game after Burnley is Fulham, and we're going to have a guest with us, Mr. Graham Roberts, to give us his views on events during his career, such as signing for Tottenham Hotspur after being spotted by Bill Nicholson as a midfield player, the great UEFA Cup final that he captained uh, the win against Anderlecht um, at White Hart Lane, which made it even more enjoyable and much, much more. I think, Tom, you're saying that we're going to be on video, so we'll have to get our... Um, Faces made up for this one, so we're not uh, we're not shining facially too much. Okay, okay, chap. So thank you for your interest in this podcast out there, and of course, as said for Tom and Howard, also, it's very much appreciated. Just to mention Burnley because it is supposed to be a Burnley podcast. I got into the team in late September '69, and for some reason. We'd already played Burnley twice by that time. What, how and why, I do not know. And I think it was two wins. And 
Burnley got, eventually got relegated. So I didn't meet them again until some years later. And that's my excuse for having no more stories about them. So come on, you Spursy people. And if I'm considered to be one of those, take it that I'm not only pleased, but very proud to be one. Up the Spurs. See you next week. Bye-bye.